Good morning. It's good to see you all today, and it's good to see uh, those who have made it a priority to gather together on the first Lord's Day of 2015. So Happy New Year to each of you. If you haven't received my email or my video greeting that communicated that very thing, and as we begin this message, I want to ask a question. In what or whom do you put your trust above all things? What is it that you put your confidence in above all things? To put it another way, where do you find your security? Is it in bank accounts? Is it in life insurance policies? Is it in your career, your job, the years that you have with your employer? Or is it in material possessions, maybe the acquiring of those things? Where do you find your ultimate security? Those of us who are in Christ, we know that our ultimate security comes from the Lord and from him alone. The reality is we live in a materialistic society that despite our determination to want to detach from that somewhat, it's still the world is seeking to press us into its mold. That we would begin to think like the world that our security comes from money or riches or possessions. And so we can begin to think like the world. We can, we can toil all of our lives to seek to acquire finances and to acquire wealth only to have those taken away in an instant. A severe cancer diagnosis with health insurance unavailable. And you spend your life savings trying to save your physical life. A stock market crash. Maybe you've put all your money into one thing and put all your eggs in one basket and you've seen that cut in half or even taken completely away. Real estate crash is another way that that could happen. Maybe it's a lawsuit and this lawsuit, happy society that, that you've, you've here, you've had all this and now it's just taken all away. You know, the old adage that money can buy everything is false, isn't it? Money can't buy everything. Just suppose, God forbid, driving home today, You were in a terrible auto accident with an 18-wheeler and ended up paralyzed from the neck down. I don't care how many zeros are in your bank account. You could offer the doctor millions of dollars if only you can allow me to not be paralyzed. That doctor is helpless. Your money is helpless. You see, brethren, our security comes from our trust and our faith in God who supplies all things. By the way, if money could buy um, an unparalysis, Christopher Reeves would have done that. The Bible speaks much about money. Jesus told many parables that had to do with money and wealth, and we've read one of them in our New Testament reading. And so the title of the message today is The Use and the Abuse of of riches. In other words, there is a good and a proper use for money. It can be a tool for the kingdom of God. But riches can also be abused, and so we must also address that. How you handle your material wealth, you might say, is a barometer of how your overall spiritual health is. There's misunderstandings about wealth and and how it can be obtained and what's really important. And we do have a couple of first-time visitors, so I do just want to say we do do not uh, 
preach high-pressure financial sermons here. Ask anyone who's been here for a while. We don't even pass a plate. There's an offering box in the back. This is not a high-pressure tithing message. It is setting forth biblical principles about riches as we set out on the new year and how we might most glorify God. That's, that's been my prayer. There's misunderstandings about money. There's, there's greed about money. The rock band Pink Floyd 40 years ago coined lyrics, money, it's a crime, share it fairly, but don't take a slice of my pie. Money, so they say, it is the root of all evil. But if you ask for a raise, it's no surprise that they're giving none away. And so that kind of mentality that, oh yeah, money's supposed to, we're supposed to be generous with it, but, but don't take any of mine. I want to see other people be generous, right? Material wealth is also not a gauge of God's blessing in your life. There are many who have very little, who God is blessing richly. You can't judge a person's, God's blessing in a person's life by the make and model and year of their automobile or the size of their house or the square footage of their house or any such thing. That is folly. In the book of Revelation in chapter 2 and verse 9, Uh, writing to Smyrna. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. In other words, they were living in extreme poverty under extreme persecution, but they were spiritually rich because of who they were in God. Remember the rich young ruler? He had this love affair with riches, and Jesus saw right through it, and he, he saw his covetous heart, and he says, if you want to be, yo, you've kept all the commandments. Well, you lack one thing. Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. And what did he do? Did he run away and do that? No. He went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. Makes the proverb true in Proverb 28. The rich man is wise in his own eyes. I know a better way. Oh, I'm different than all of them. I know a better way. And remember, Jesus tells the story in Luke 12, which we did not read, about a rich man whose land was productive and prosperous. And just reading Luke 12, verse 17 and onward, he began reasoning with himself, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns. I will build larger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself but is not rich towards God. Very sobering. In James chapter 1, the rich man in his, in the glor- is to glory in his humiliation because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. Well, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to look at just three short verses. We're going to be bouncing back to the Luke 16 passage a little bit. As we go through this, but this will be our primary text today. And I'm actually going to begin reading at verse 6 to get the broader context because the broader context is vitally important as Paul closes his letter to young Timothy. 
He begins in verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, and so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall in temptation and a snare in many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you, man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith and take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Skipping down to verse 17. And by the way, before I read this, notice the four uses of the word rich in our English translation. It's actually the same root word in the Greek as well. But there are four different uses of the word rich, okay? So notice them. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things. Instruct them to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask today that you would have your way with us, O God, that you would, as it were, take out the supernatural scalpel and to lay back the flesh and to open up our hearts before you. Lord, that you would expose seeds of greed, seeds of covetousness, seeds of discontent, And Lord, that you as the master surgeon, as it were, and as the great physician would remove those seeds. And Lord, that you would actually transform our hearts, that we would be those who are generous and ready to share, that we would be those who are rich towards God and not putting our confidence in the riches of this world which is passing. Lord, we pray that you would speak to each and every heart by your spirit. And so, Lord, we know that we are dull, we are sinful, we are easily distracted. And Lord, so we ask that you would send the Spirit upon us and have your way with each and every one. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So you'll notice the beginning of the text where I started reading has to do with contentment, basic contentment. If we have food and clothing, with these things we shall be content. And then he shifts in verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Very strong language that he uses there. And then he says, of course, um, that some by longing for it, and this is striking, have wandered away from the faith and pierced them things with themselves with many griefs. It literally means they have left the faith because in their pursuit of this false god, this idol of money, they have left the faith in pursuit of that. And literally in the original, what it means here when it, when it says that they pierce themselves is that they put themselves on a spit over an open fire. 
They've killed themselves, basically, in the pursuit of money. They've left the faith. They've proven themselves to be apostates. And so in this graphic, striking, strong language here that we have before us, it should cause our attention to be focused, to pay close attention to what this has to say for us. And so Paul says, but you, Timothy, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And then he closes out the letter, really, here. Instruct those, literally command those who are rich. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on riches. So we're going to see in verse 17 our correct attitude that's necessary before God. In verse 18, our attitude towards others, especially the saints. And then in verse 19, storing real riches and securing eternal riches. So first of all, just 17a, the first half of the verse, don't fix your hope on riches. Maybe God has blessed some of you with wealth, and maybe you've got a well-paying job, and by God's providence, you've got a healthy savings account. All of that is a blessing, and that is good because wealth comes from God. It's a sign of God's blessing in your life. But the warning here is not to become conceited. In other words, not to fall into pride because of your accomplishments and what you have done, but to be those who are generous and ready to share with others. Beware of allowing your wealth to cause you to well up with pride. And as I said here, it's really a command. And he says, instruct those. It's the same as verse 13. I charge you. He's saying, charge those who are rich not to do these things. Command them who are rich not to do these things. Well, we might have to answer the question, who are the rich? Well, we're going to unpack that in a moment. I'm going to try not to get ahead of myself. But the rich in this present age, so this present temporal age of which we're talking about. And why do some become proud over their possessions? It's because the tendency to think that I've, I've acquired what I have by my own hard work, by my rolling up, you know, putting on my own boots and rolling up my sleeves and all of these types of things. And in a sense, the hand of the diligent is rewarded by the Lord. So of course that's true. But ultimately it comes from the Lord. It is the Lord who gives us the power to make wealth. Deuteronomy 8 lays this out very beautifully. And remember that during the Exodus, they're wandering around and, 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 um, God is saying that, that, did your shoes wear out those 40 years? Was there ever any lack of food? No. You were provided for. And in verse 11 of that chapter, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances, which I am commanding you today. And then he goes on to say, once you have eaten, once you are satisfied, you hear the American kind of mentality, once you have your fill and you've got everything, he says, Beware that your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. It was a, it's a picture of bringing us out of slavery, right? And that's, they were slaves in Egypt and they're delivered. And that's a picture of our salvation because Christ has set us free by his redemption. That now we are free. We are set free. We're no longer slaves to sin. He goes on in chapter 8 and verse 17 of Deuteronomy. Otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand has made this wealth, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. 
See, some of us need to repent of our thinking as far as how we've acquired what we've acquired and all of these types of things. I like David's prayer at the end of First Chronicles. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might. It lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen anyone. Well, some of our little children can most probably have a little piggy bank at home, right? You know, these little containers where you put little coins in, and you, the idea is that you acquire an amount, right? A penny or a nickel or a quarter for folding laundry doesn't add up to a whole lot. But when you have several of those, it adds up to something, and you can actually buy something that you enjoy. Is there anything wrong with that? No, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I mean, these are, those are principles that even adults should do to to be prudent and to save, to be sure we can provide for our families and and to have something for our children and so forth. So these are biblical principles. But parents need to be able to teach our children about how money can glorify God. That this isn't just about you acquiring your newest gadget or your newest toy or PlayStation game or whatever the newest thing is nowadays. I'm out of touch with that stuff, but the the idea is that that you need to glorify God with this. And God has enabled you to save that money and to instruct our children at a young age what it means to tithe, what it means to give a portion of what they accumulate, however small that may be. Sorry, we instructed our kids years ago with this, and so the poor deacons, when they count the money, if there's coins in there, I know that's a hassle. It's easier just to count dollars, but that's probably our family that has uh, contributed to that thorn in the flesh. But uh, Carissa has just landed a little tutor job she's going to be starting this week, and she'll be making a a little bit of money. a pretty considerable amount of money, actually, if, if it continues on. And so she's going to have to wrestle as a young adult, almost 18 years old. How am I going to glorify God with this money? Is it just all me and for my, my thing and for my college or whatever? Or am I going to glorify God, be generous and shared, give to those in need, and to give to the work of the church? This word conceited in our text here is the, it's the opposite of what we learn in Philippians 2.3 where we esteem others as more important than ourselves. It's the opposite of that. So who are the rich? You may say, well, wait a minute. My family's just getting by. We coasted into the church parking lot on fumes. We're just getting by. Who are you calling rich? Well, in Ephesus, and that's the context of 1 Timothy, is the church in Ephesus in about the 60s or so, AD 60, there were very few who were rich. The Roman Empire was, was, was massive and oppressive, and, and so there were very few that were rich, and yet the exhortation went out to them. But if you live in America today, by the world standards, you are by far better off than some of the poorest countries. I would say even the poorest third, the bottom third, that live on a one to two dollars a day, you are far richer than the rest of the world. If you have the privilege, and just think of it like this, to not have to work 10 to 14 hours a day, six days a week, just to put food on the table, you are rich because most of the world has that burden. They toil and they work countless hours just to eat and just to survive. In my own personal travels, being going to Africa twice and Thailand and the Philippines over the years and so forth, I've had, I've had the opportunity to see real poverty. 
And I don't think we in America really know what real poverty is. Though the governing officials will call certain things poverty as a, as a reason to give more handouts. The poorest American in this country out of the 300 million living in the worst condition of a shelter or homeless or whatever, eating the smallest amount of food, is richer than most in the world. Our nation is consumed with materialism, and that's no secret. We just came out of another Christmas season. Uh, I've actually learned to block out all the marketing and all the buzz of this. you got to have this gadget and that thing. We don't watch commercials or have cable or anything like that. So I guess I'm a little bit kind of stepped back from it. But nevertheless, I know it is real, and I know it is huge. And again, Christians can fall into this mold of thinking it's all about material. It's all about possessions. If only I can get more possessions, then I'll finally be happy, Lord. Lord, let me have this, and then I'll be happy. Then I'll serve you. Then I'll do this. Even the elections, you know, each election that comes up, who wins? The one who promises to give the most back, right? Pretty much, that's the way it's been lately. The one who promises to give, put more people on welfare, more people on food stamps, and, and to give more back, those are typically the ones that win. And that's our society. Satisfaction, brethren, does not come from riches. Paul says very clearly here that riches are uncertain. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on riches. Riches can be here today, gone tomorrow. Riches can be like a vapor. The proverb uses the term that it it takes wings and flies away. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. You can't put your confidence in that. Look at the last 30 or 40 years, all the various lottery winners and all the surveys that have been done. And by and far, the far, the, the, the large percentage of them are much more unhappy having hit the jackpot, quote. And there's some deplorable stories, actually, that I've read in the past, and many ending in suicide, uh, families ripped apart, you know, just terrible things because of thinking that this is the key to happiness. If only I can get this, and then you win it, and you think everything's going to be perfect, and it's not. It just gets way more complicated. Riches often bring sorrow. Think about it. We spend so much of our lives trying to obtain riches. And then once you've obtained it, you think, okay, wow. Okay, now I'm I'm comfortable, right? Then you've got to toil in like, how do I maintain it? Not gain it now that I have it. How do I maintain it? Thomas Brooks, one of my favorite Puritans, says this in one of his works. Earthly riches are called thorns, and well they may. For as thorns, they pierce both the head and the heart. The head with the cares in getting them the heart with the grief and parting with them. And so the whole idea of when you have to part with them, how terrible that is. Rockefeller himself, a hundred years ago, was asked how much is enough money. And you know what his answer was? Just a little bit more. And after he acquired his millions and millions, he confessed it brought no happiness. We read of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2 and you hopefully you're paying attention, but he's acquired all of these things and built vineyards and enlarged his works and his forests and his flocks and all of these things. 
And it says in verse 11, And thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I have exerted, and behold, it was all vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Another man has said, If rich men only knew when they died, these three things, if rich men only knew when they died, how their relatives would scramble for their money, how the worms would scramble for their bodies, and how the devil would scramble for their souls, they would not be so anxious to obtain and to save money. Just before the Depression in 1923, um, nine of the world's greatest CEOs of the largest steel companies and Wall Street tycoons all came together, and, and they were the richest men by the world's standards, the ones who have really made it. And they came together for a meeting and so forth. And within 10 years, each of them had lost everything and died penniless. The Lord is able to humble the proud. The Lord is able to humble the rich. David says in Psalm 16, The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. And that's what really happens. If you make money your God, Your sorrows will be multiplied. You will never, ever find satisfaction in that. Oh, you may have temporal satisfaction like Moses talks about in Hebrews 11, but of course he doesn't doesn't stay there. So don't trust in riches. Don't let them make you conceited and proud. Secondly, verse 17b to 18, fix your hope on God and be rich in good works. Fix your hope on God, who alone is stable. Notice he says, don't be conceited and, or to fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, very clearly, forcefully, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. It is God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It is God who owns the very hills of which those cattle roam. It is God who holds everything together in the galaxy and the the stars and the planets by the word of his power. It is God who has done everything and owns everything. And he will richly supply us with all things to enjoy. James chapter 1, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from where? Above. It comes from him. And so those are the gifts that we want to cherish. Those are the gifts that we want to enjoy. We need to keep the proper mindset of having an attitude of gratitude for what God has given us. In chapter 4 of this very letter, he says, um, he's talking about everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. This is in the context of those who forbid marriage and abstaining from certain foods and all this. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. So God has given us all things to enjoy. As we read in Luke 16, which in some ways is an argument of the lesser to the greater, we see this unrighteous steward, if you were paying attention, where he knows he's going to end his job, his job's going to end, he knows he he doesn't want to beg or dig, and so he ends up wheeling and dealing with those who owes his master money, right, so that he might have favor with them. But notice verse 10 and 11. Verse 9, for I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in the very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in the very little thing is unrighteous in much. 
Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust, notice, true riches to you? And you have to, there's, I don't have time to unpack the whole parable here, but you have to stand back and you see that material wealth and, and finances is just like, it's just kind of a tool. It's just kind of, it's unrighteous mammon, right? When you serve God or mammon. But he, when he talks about it and he sets that side by side, unrighteous wealth compared to true riches. What do you think true riches are? True riches is knowing that your eternal state is secure. True riches is knowing that you fixed your hope on God, which is certain and stable and unshakable, and nothing can sway God. That's where true riches come from. True riches is seeing the beauty and the richness of Christ and the richness of his grace, which he's lavished upon us. But he goes on in verse 18 instruct them and that by the way that's supplied the command is supplied here again um, command them or instruct them to do good to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share so we have a few things here to do good and to be rich in good works the first two things mentioned here are very interesting it does not require money to do good doesn't require money right To be rich in good works does not require money. God values a servant heart toward him because it displays being rich towards God. To do good, this verb only occurs here in one place in Acts where it says, He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, a picture of common grace. And so too, as we do good, we are to do good to all men. Okay, especially the household of faith, yes and amen, but to all men. We need to have an attitude that we would be a blessing to a lost and dying world who does not know God. That we would do good and be generous, even in regards to having opportunities to be a blessing to them. 1 John 3.17, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him and so we have ministries such as supporting turning point pregnancy resource center is every woman who comes in there for counseling uh, because of an unwanted pregnancy a christian no but we support them because we know that the goal is is to point them to christ and to save physical lives the rescue mission we have no ground of assurance that every female that comes to the ladies bible studies that, that each one of them are christians but we go we a couple weeks ago gave donations the church gave a small financial gift we do that to be a blessing unto all men other various mercy ministries could be listed but then he goes on in 18c he says to be generous and ready to share these are two interesting greek words actually uh, which I'm not going to really comment on, but it's just the idea of being having a readiness to share what you have and to have a generous heart about that is the idea that's here. And so do we have a right attitude about money? Again, you can go home and pull out your latest credit card statement or maybe, well, I don't want the Christmas credit card statement. Just fine. Look back three or four months and you can look at what you spend your money on. What do you invest in? 
Where are you putting your money? Where's your time and your treasures being spent? And you can get a good barometer of where you are at. The proverb says, the generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. This is a, one of the verses in Proverbs that our family memorized early on. And I can tell you that to the degree that we have watered others, we certainly have been watered by others. And so this is a, a proverb, a maxim, but it is, is certainly truth. In our membership class, we talk about this. And so those of you who have been through it recently, sorry, but... John Wesley in the 1700s, his pay was 30 pounds per year. This was a time in England when inflation was pretty non-existent, not like in our day. And so for several years, he's getting paid 30 30 pounds, and he lived on 28. Sorry, he lived on 28. So he gave two away to the poor. The next year, he made 60 pounds. He still lived on 28 and gave 32 away to the poor. His greatest year was 1,400 pounds, and he still lived on 28 pounds per year and gave the rest away to charity. He reports that he never had more than 100 pounds at any time. So you can see the the mentality of just, to the degree that God blesses, uh, I'll have a comfortable life, but that is just going to be a blessing onto others. I'm just going to be a channel for how God may use me. Turn to Matthew 25 for a moment. Matthew 25 comes right after the Olivet Discourse. It's well part of it. And there's three parables that are given. Very, very sobering parables. The first is that of the ten virgins. Remember the foolish did not take any oil, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the, the other five had oil in their lamps. And then when the bridegroom called, they said, give us some oil. And of course, that didn't happen. Then you have the parable of the talents. Another picture of God giving um, some various amounts of talents according to our ability. Each one of these are a warning to at the end that if you to be ready and of readiness. But then this last one, beginning in verse thirty-one, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels are with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates sheep and goats. He will put the sheep on the right and goats on the left. And then the king will say on those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the, un, then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or, or see you thirsty or to give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it unto one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it unto me. And it goes on, Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And what is the basis of that? For when I was hungry... You gave me nothing to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. When I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. When I was naked, you did not clothe me. When I was sick and in prison, you did not visit me. 
Then they themselves will answer, Lord, when did we see you? All of those things. And he says in verse 45, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment. Why do I read that? Well, I think it fits with this idea of being generous and being ready to share. Having an attitude to do good to all men is vitally important. One way to be more like Christ is, is not just in your finances. It's, it's your attitude of love towards the world and love towards the brethren. You can practice this in the context of your own home by making small little sacrifices. Small little sacrifices like doing the dishes, folding the laundry, being a servant, uh, the wives going the extra mile, children uh, not bickering and seeking to love one another in the workplace, uh, letting someone with only uh, um, someone before you to allow them to be promoted before you. All these different ways. We need to have a loose grip on finances because at the end, we must share our wealth with others. The key to our love for money and our potential love for money, the antidote for the love of money is to share your wealth with others. And so he uses this term, being rich in good works. Being rich in good works. That's the spirit of the early church. In the early church, they shared. They had all things as common together. And they shared these things one with another. In Acts 2, 42 to 44. Acts 4, 34 to 37. This was a common thing of how they lived. Why do you think so ministries go underfunded? It's not because of lack of Christians. It is that Christians are not Christ-like enough in their giving and in their generosity to these causes. A church member that might be well-off should strive to be rich in good deeds, to offer to share and to help those in need. Born-again Christians are the richest people in the world, by the way. We have spiritual wealth that goes far beyond our bank account. We are those who, as we talked about last week, as we pray accurately for one another, praying for the riches of his glory. We, have been, we are those who have received the riches of his grace that have been lavished upon us. And Paul uses this term in this present age, I think, to, as, a, as, as sort of a reminder that there's an eternal age, that, that the wealth in this age is transitory, it's temporal, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow, compared to eternal wealth. Well, let's transition now to verse 19, saving up real riches. In verse 19, he says, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of life indeed. You see, interest rates are falling. Many companies are cutting their dividends. Um, The stock market could be in a bubble, all of these various things. Those things you can't put your confidence in. You can't try to time things. But one thing is sure that if you store up for yourselves treasure for the future, and I mean far into the future, that that is riches that will never disappear. You know, there's financial planners that'll sit down with you. What's your time horizon? Okay, you're 40 years old now. You 25 more working years and you want to live to 90 or whatever. And okay, you need this much money and all that. The problem is those financial planners, they stop short. 
Because they stop at 85 or 90, and they don't look into eternity, right? And it's all about just, oh, let's the financial stuff. And there's, there's nothing wrong with making sure that you have enough. Don't get me wrong. But Paul's point here is that we would look past this life, that we would have an eternal vision of our spiritual riches, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the eternal future, I think is the thrust of what Paul is saying here. We need a much longer time horizon than 80 or 90 years old or whatever it is. That's why Jesus could say in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves what? Treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor nor rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. In God's economy, storing up earthly treasure is actually a bad investment. Apart from providing for your family and all of that, not being a burden unto others, it's actually not wise. We need to have an eternal vision of laying up our spiritual riches. Many more stories could be told of one of the richest men in the world in the 1800s, worth $100 million in the 1800s. What is that? Trillions or so, I don't know, hundreds of billions or something in nowadays dollars. He died in despair. He made many long-term investments, but none were long enough. And sadly, he did not realize that till the very end of his life when he realized, I'm not prepared for eternity. And his last words on his deathbed words, I am the most miserable devil in the world. So all of that wealth and everything, and, and, and you, you accumulate all the wealth in the here and now, and so then finally you're on your deathbed and you realize you are totally unprepared for eternity. And he realizes at this point, obviously, that there was no hope for him. So, to have this generous attitude is good. To, to be generous and to be ready to share, to, by giving materially, we actually benefit spiritually. We have a good conscience. We have a reception with those who are benefited as in the Luke 16 parable. And then we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Invest in the kingdom of God. And look what happens at the end here. So that, here's our purpose clause, so that you will take hold or the good foundation for the future, and then take hold of that which is life indeed. In other words, that which is true life. This, yes, we have a life here, but true life is eternal life. True life is outside, beyond this world. Lay hold of true life indeed. It takes faith to be generous, to give up earthly riches, to gain heavenly riches. But what a great bargain. It's something that that you will not lose in it all. The old adage, you can't take it with you, is true of worldly treasure and worldly possessions. But spiritual riches is yours into eternity. You can take that with you. What is um, Jim Elliott? He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he will never lose. One man said to dispense our wealth is the best way to preserve it. Sounds like that proverb in Proverbs eleven twenty five, As God enables you, do good to all men. Rather than hoping others will, will see you and to bless you, seek and, and purpose, how can I be a blessing to others? Rather than waiting for those to be a blessing to you. And also, we need to be cautioned in Second Thessalonians 
Paul writes about these men who live unprincipled lives. We should not support sloth. And so you need to be careful. It's not just giving money freely and throwing it up into the air, but it's purposely, it's, it's praying. It's, it's praying as God would lead you to give much, to give glory to Him. And this goes without saying you should be committed to supporting the local church and tithing, whether that's 10%, the principal 10% in the Old Testament, certainly I think carries through as a general guide into the New Testament, but we need to be those who are, who are those who are willing to give of our resources to support the spread of the gospel. In Acts 4, verse 32, they found great joy in giving to the cause of the gospel as it was going out. John Piper has a great sermon on tithing, by the way, and he, he, he argues, I'm going to try to sum it in one minute, <laughs> it's a whole sermon, but essentially that if you really believe all money is God's, do you really believe that? Yeah, we do, okay? The money we have is ultimately God's, right? We're just, by giving 10% of it or by giving a tithe, whatever that percentage is, we prove that we believe it. In other words, we know it's all God's, but by giving a fraction of that, we actually prove that we believe that. Well, very quickly, a couple points of application. The first is this. As we come into this new year, we parents have a big obligation to ask ourselves, how are we training our children, our young children, our young adults? How are we, what are we teaching them about money? Are we giving them the right biblical principles about money, how to use money as a tool for the kingdom of God, how to be sure to have enough of it to provide for yourself, to not be a burden unto others? Oh, there's all of these things, but are we doing those things? What are they seeing in you and me as parents? Are they seeing a covetous heart? Are they seeing greed? Are they seeing these types of things? And if so, those things need to be purged. How do they see you respond to money or financial advantage? We need to teach them that the antidote to greed and wanting the next toy is generosity. And you feel that strong desire that you've got to have the next thing to maybe turn that desire around and say, what can I do to be a blessing unto others? I don't need that thing. I'm going to receive so much greater reward by seeing somebody else blessed. Secondly, may the Lord be pleased to give us a biblical, proper perspective on money. As I said, it is a tool to use for the glory of God, to see the gospel spread, to see missionaries funded. Money is a wonderful thing if we're not consumed by it. It's a wonderful thing if we use it for the glory of God, but when we begin to put our security and our confidence in it, that's when we go wrong. There is no certainty in money. There's no lasting peace. There's no security that ultimately comes from that. And the love of money has ruined many, and we need to remember that. Proverbs 23, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. For when you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. Be a smart investor, if I can use that terminology. Invest in the kingdom of God. Invest in giving your temporal wealth unto the work of the gospel, unto being generous to others, and you will receive eternal heavenly wealth. That's the ultimate good investment. And finally, are you imitating the Lord Jesus Christ in this? 
when we've quoted this verse a couple of weeks ago, or I did in my uh, Christmas sermon, but 2 Corinthians 8 9, or do you not know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. He was generous. He never turned any away. He had all wealth. He completely humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, coming and dying on, on the cross for us, giving up his life for us. You see, if you're outside of Christ, you can't be rich in good works unto God because you are not in fellowship with God. You're at enmity with God. And you must first confess your sins, confess that you have sinned against his holiness. To hate your sin and to turn from it and to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. See, you can't, you can't be rich in good works unto God until you first come into communion with God. And Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. So come to him today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the practicality of it. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to speak to our hearts, O God. We pray that you would challenge us, that you would convict us. Lord, that you would help us to see such a beauty and wealth in Christ and in knowing Christ. That we would expend more energy in pursuing our communion and our fellowship with the second person of the Holy Trinity and understanding more of the mystery of his person and his work as our great mediator. Lord, that we would invest more time in that than the pursuit of financial gain. We thank you for the riches of your grace. We thank you, Lord, that we can never repay. We thank you, Lord, that you have given that freely. We thank you so much for what you have done and what you are doing. Help us, O God, to think biblically in these things in this new year. May this year be the most prosperous that each of us would have and prosperous spiritually first first and foremost and to the degree that we are excelling spiritually and in serving you and growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, we would ask that in your kindness you might be pleased to bless us physically as well, materially, if that would be a part of your plan. Nevertheless, we pray, Lord, not our will, but your will be done. Be pleased to build up this church. Be pleased to make it... um, focused on Christ and that it would continue for the next 10 years to be focused on Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this new year. We have great anticipation, great excitement as to what you might do in the coming months. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.